0: I'm going to call calling this final session The Outlaw to Our Ideas of Retribution. We think about all sorts of ways, don't we, where we realize that there is confrontation. To us personally, we look around in the world and we see confrontation in so many situations. We see, if you like, we see corporate confrontation, we see global confrontation, but confrontation comes right down uh, to the very local level, and even to the personal level. Uh, it spans the globe. In fact, you could say that co- the confrontation of human beings is really at the very core of our being. It, it's, a, it's a real problem of humanity. i give you two examples. Uh, one of, um, you won't be surprised for me to be um, using Steve Jobs as an illustration. Steve Jobs and the Apple corporation have had continue to have actually a global brawl with Google. And I actually think as I read the you know the information around it I actually think Steve Jobs was appallingly treated shockingly treated uh, by the founders of Google that's as you read the the information that's available uh, and it's all kind of filled up with with uh, legal battles continuing to go on. But the end result of that was, towards the end of his life, uh, Steve Jobs said he would spend every dime, every last dime, uh, in fighting this injustice. It got right down deep so far that he was going to commit something like $40 billion uh, to fight this battle. That's at one side. On the other side, the ones that are, if you like, the ones that aren't quite so distant and so uh, so un- unconnected to, to our own personal experience, ones that are really far more close to home, far more absolutely news-hitting. Uh, we think of something like Dale Cregan. You know that shocking, awful situation over in Manchester where he lures... To a uh, policewoman, to a particular house, um, giving information that the false burglar in, he shoots them. Where did that come from? It came from the escalating of a feud between families, a, a shocking escalation. Two situation, two families where it gets out of control and it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes an awful situation, which results in something terrible like that. Now, both of those are, if you like, their news headline-type crises. But I don't think I need to say to you—I think you know it already—that the reality is that a crisis like that, pers- interpersonal crisis, confrontation, is what we have to deal with. Jesus comes into our situation and he speaks powerfully about our human condition in this particular text. And as we read it, we find that he is demanding something of us which is just breathtaking and yet significant, not just because of what it demands. And what I want to look at this afternoon is not just what he's saying, but how what he's saying fits in to the whole of the storyline of the Bible. Why it is that big? Why it is that significant? So, we've been looking at, well, how does this law, how do we construct laws around these issues? So, if we have a look at the opening verse, you have heard uh, that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to them the other cheek also. Many of you, if you've not come across the Bible m- before, most of you will have heard that idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's kind of entered into uh, our general ideas. Uh, at the same time, we see that it is, it's written into uh, the Bible. In fact, it, it's way back there in, in the Old Testament. Well, How does that work out? Uh, And in fact, what Jesus comes and he tells us to do something quite remarkable. In fact, as we read it, we think, this is terrible because I I can't do this. I can't just turn the other cheek if somebody slaps me. Why? Because our law, as we work it out in our minds, makes certain demands. Our law, our approach is if somebody offends me... I'm going to to do a number of things. First is, I am going to respond in a way which is greater than their response. That's the first absolute commitment that I'm going to make. Whatever they've done, I am absolutely committed that my response is going to be greater than their first action. Whether that's I'm going to crush their company or whether I'm going to escalate it in a shooting incident, or whether I'm just going to snap back in the office a little bit more than the person who was uh, first behaving in a way which seemed inappropriate. I'm going to be bigger. I'm going to dominate them in some way. Secondly, I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to forget that until it's resolved, until that issue is is kind of dealt with. I will not let go of it. That's a tendency that we have. And we do this, and this is something that we just want to hold on to and come back to right at the end. We do this by making sure that we keep a really strong connection between the doer and the deed. We connect the two. We make sure that we keep the person who has done it And what they have done, really tightly connected. So they have done that to me. And it's tightly connected and I'm going to respond to it. Why do we behave like that? And this is another aspect. We behave like that, I want to suggest, because deep down written into us is a right sense of justice, isn't it? Justice is a really important thing. We can't live in a world where injustice is just allowed to run rampant. So there is some sense in which we respond in a way because we believe in justice and we hate injustice. Now within all of that, how do we work it out? What's actually going on here? First thing I want to do is I want to firstly put this comment of Jesus into a historical context. It's the first thing I want to say. Let's understand how if you and I put Jewish sandals on from the first century and we were in that particular town where Jesus was saying this and we were crowded around and we heard him say it, how you and I would respond to what he's just said. First thing is that this is Bible dynamite that Jesus is saying. He's saying, respond in a way which is different to what you have previously been instructed to respond. That's... (laughs) That's amazing. If we take our minds back, all the way back to, um, if we go back to Exodus, we read in Exodus, God says this, God says this, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. (laughs) That's amazing, isn't it? That's how you are to respond. Exodus chapter 21, 23 to 25. You say, well, hang on a sec. That's what God said back there in Exodus. Now, if we understand Jesus to be the Son of God, what is going on? Where he steps in hundreds of years later and it sounds, as we first hear it, like he is turning over what god has already said it sounds as if he's turning over as if he's saying what went before is now wrong firstly i want to make a quick comment the intervention of jesus changes everything firstly it it it, it means that we have as absolutely no we have no foundation whatsoever for any kind of oppressive behavior as Christians. And I, I say that because when we look back through history, and many of you might be thinking, but the church has behaved in a terrible way in lots of occasion, on lots of occasions. I would say, absolutely, And Jesus' words here, say that that has never been acceptable. That has always been wrong, the way the church has behaved at times. So that's just a passing comment. But why does Jesus seem to reverse what God has said before. We can only understand it when we understand those two comments, those two instructions in the pattern of humanity. If we read the storyline of the Bible from the very beginning, what God is doing is he's holding up a mirror to the way human beings are. He's giving us an opportunity to see the reality. We have it recorded, the reality going on. So we have, right at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, this is the way humanity behaves. A man named Lamech is one of the first recorded names in amongst a whole host of others. Lamech is recorded in the Bible saying this to his wives. His wives were named Ada and Zillah. And he says this, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, li- wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech was not a lover of God. But recorded in the Bible is a little picture, if you like, of how the world was. And actually, if you like a mirror, a reflection of what our tendency is. Our tendency is to escalate. Our tendency is to make it bigger. If you hit me once, I'm going to batter you. That's the kind of human response. And Lamech, is that living example recorded as a historical figure to say this is what the world was like in, that, in those ancient days. The response, the behavior that seemed appropriate is if you wound me, I'll kill you. If you do anything, I'll multiply it by seven and I'll get you. Now, in a sense, as we hear that, you might be thinking, nothing much has changed actually, has it? In one sense, it continues to be the same. Lamech is not recorded as a good person. He's recorded as a problem. He's identified as this is what human behavior is like. This is the way it is. Now, if you, if you think Through, therefore, if that's what happens when human behavior escalates, if that's the way it is, if the behavior of the rise of the ancient empires, the likes of the Egyptian empire, was, if you like, it was a political, um, country wide behavior like that, it was the kind of massive oppression and opposition. If, if our lands and our, if the ancient lands and the ancient nations were going to behave uh, in the way that Lamech behaved, then the language of the people, the language of the world at that day, was simply this: power wins. Power wins. And therefore, whenever we see power, whenever we see that kind of overt escalation, we see winning. And then God comes to his people and he says, right, now, if you are my people, you are not going to behave like that. You are going to behave in a balanced way. So where the nations around might demand a life For a wounding, you are to live differently. The way I am instructing your governance, the governance of my people, the establishment of Israel, which is what we read in Exodus, is it's going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Historically, what is God doing? He is calming the world. He's calming the world. If you like, the nations were behaving in a way which is utter, overt, excessive escalation. And God says, don't behave like that. You keep it balanced. You keep it steady. You make the response appropriate for the first behavior. Now, quite honestly, 21st Western hearers find that completely normal. We find that idea of balance completely normal. But we've got to understand that this is being written throughout the the history of this world to nations and to people who would find that kind of behavior behavior uncomfortable. The only way for many in the past to maintain order is for the, the powers that be to be bigger than the offense. And God is saying, don't behave like that. So that's how God's people were called to live. Now, that had become established. If you like, it had become gradually the norming of the world, the balancing of the ideas of justice in this world the establishing of the concepts of justice in this world so that we begin to see those ideas emerging in wider society. We begin to see, rather than the kind of powerful emperors and the powerful leaders, the behavior of the likes of the pharaohs of the ancient world, whose behavior was so absolutely awful and offensive and abhorrent, we begin to see the balancing of justice in the world. Why? Why do we see the balancing of justice? Because actually, what we see is we see God working through his people in this world. Why do you think the world is not a shocking, terrible place everywhere? Because to some extent, God is applying his calming to to this world. Why do we get upset when we see nations and people behaving in a way which doesn't live in this balanced way? Because we know that it's not how it should be. Now, if we've got to a point where we think, okay, this calming, this balancing, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Maybe we'll put it into context and see how it changed the world. Now what Jesus says is even more dramatic, isn't it? Because he comes in and he says this, right, you've heard it said, <laughs> you've heard it said because that's what I said effectively as the living God back there. Do you know what? We're in for another step change. That's effectively what God is saying we're in for another step change in the way we reconcile our differences with with individuals. If you want to live, if you want effectively what he's saying, if you want to consider yourself as part of this new kingdom, part of my people, somebody slaps you, he actually says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, interesting. If you are right handed, most people are right handed, and somebody slaps you on the right cheek, they've given you a right good backhander, haven't they? That's the right hand across the right cheek. They've just come up to you and given you a right good crack, right across the face. And Jesus says, and this is where there is a a massive shift, he says, when that happens, don't respond with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that, even for us today, is a problem, isn't it? I was, um, I was at a conference in um, Holland years ago now. Big computer conference. People from all sorts of different countries. Gone over with a group of guys from, um, from uh, I think they were from Holland actually. And there was people from all sorts of different countries. And it was fascinating. As we got into this conversation about how you informally greet each other in different countries... And, you know, that kind of, um, you know, the peck on the cheek, each side kind of thing. You see it in France, and it's a kiss on this cheek and a kiss on that cheek. And, well, actually, apparently in this other country, I can't remember where she was from, but she said, uh, in our country, it's, actually, it's not one cheek and then the other cheek, and it's three. You've got to go there and there and there. And you, and, and then this other, oh, no, 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 it's just two, and it's there and there and then. It's, it's actually four, it's there and there and there, and you can What what do we do? Wikipedia puts it like this. Generally, the gesture is repeated with the other cheek or more, alternating cheeks, depending on country and situation. The number of kisses is usually one, two, three, or four. So that really makes us comfortable going to continental Europe, doesn't it? And you kind of, oh, no kissing here. Sorry about that. What's Jesus saying? He's saying Effectively what he's saying is this, when somebody approaches you with offense, you present the other cheek. That is a figurative term in a sense. I don't believe that what Jesus is saying is if somebody gives you a right good crack, you then offer the other cheek and say, do you want to try that one as well? (laughs) I don't think he's saying that. Jesus also says, just to put it in perspective, to help us to understand the language, Jesus also says, if your eye offends you, then pluck it out. He's not saying literally. He's saying, in my heart, in my approach, in my attitude towards that individual who has offended me, my approach... In that offence is to extend friendship. Because that's what friends do. Extend openness. That, that, that's kind of, you know, if you're, in, if you're in Holland and you do the left, the right, and then the left kind of thing. You're extending friendship. Exactly the same in Jesus' day. Exactly the same in that culture. The, the double kiss on the cheek was a sign of affection in the day for Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is effectively if somebody causes you offence, then your response, your approach is to meet that offence offense, with openness, friendship. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? That is, that is really hard. Because that stands in the face of all of our commitments of justice and retribution, all of our ideas of if anything, anybody does something to me, then I've got to at least respond in a way which is somehow greater. I've got to connect the person to the act, and I will not forget. I've got to hold on to that. Jesus effectively, he escalates the process that God has already introduced. And this is where we put Jesus' words into the historical context. If we've got a world which is just rampantly violent, God comes in and He says, balance it. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Get some balance. And what that does is it calms the world. And then Jesus comes in again. And a second point as the authoritative voice of God. He now says, now in the face of opposition, extend friendship. David Wells described it like this. He said, the introduction of the message of the gospel tamed barbarian Europe. I found that fascinating. It tamed barbarian Europe. You've seen, many of you will have seen, the beginning of the film Gladiator. Fantastic cinematography, where you've got the Roman legions against the barbarian hordes, you know, that kind of classic confrontation. In a sense, you see some levels of civilization. Uh, expressed there. You've got a conflict of the old and the new, the dawning civilization and the old, uh, if you like, barbarian ideas. Now what follows on from that is the growth of the idea of the Christian message which tames barbarian Europe. Now just stop for a minute because I want to suggest something which some might find quite maybe interesting, maybe you'll get upset by this. What I want to suggest to you is that the intervention of God in this world throughout history, throughout history, is working towards the calming of this world. Now we know it is not fully working, is it? We know it's not. But we know even more that that's not the way to live. We know that that's wrong. We know that that's injustice. Whereas previously that would have been just the way we lived. That would have been natural humanity. And the introduction of God's dealing with this world changes. It moves, it shifts our thinking so that we become the tamed, the calmed, The ones who naturally assume, increasingly naturally assume, that in the face of opposition, we don't seek an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We seek resolution. Some of us might find that really offensive at times. Some of you might find that really offensive. But that is what is increasingly being written into our way of thinking. Resolution, restoration, change. You look at the underpinning of the prison service today, it's what? It's about resolving and changing individuals. (laughs) The calming. Why? I want to suggest that that is, on a global scale, that is the big introduction of the idea of the message of God. It's a reversal. But you know, the reality is that this, this hits very personally, doesn't it? It's okay to talk about those global impacts, isn't it? It's okay to talk about the big changes that have gone on. But this actually says to you and to me, in my day-to-day life, in my day-to-day life, and therefore as a follower of Jesus Christ, if that's what you would claim to be, my response, your response has got to be a shift in my natural tendency a shift in my natural tendency, a response to extend well-being and good to somebody who has offended me, a desire to not meet opposition with opposition, to not meet violence with violence, to not meet hatred with hatred, but rather for me to reverse the behavior and the pattern of behavior. I escalate. Now that is mind-blowing for us to think about. Why? 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 Why should we do that? Because it reverses our ideas of injustice and it frees us. It frees us ultimately. We see this as the text continues. Verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. So that you may be children of your heavenly Father. In other words why is that well let's ask the question why is that added on at the end that so that you may be children of your heavenly father behave like this it's written that way because were to be were to behave were to approach things the way god approaches things the way he behaves In other words, we are to live the way he lives. We are to express the way he expresses. It continues by saying, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How does God live in this world? How does God behave towards humanity that is rebelling? Effectively, what he does and this is where we extend this idea of the disconnection, he disconnects to some extent the individual, the doer, from the deed because he pours out good irrespective of whether that person has done good or has done evil. There is a disconnection. Miroslav Volf, some of you might have heard of him. Miroslav Volf is a theologian, great thinking Protestant theologian. Miroslav Volf was brought up in Serbia and um, grew up in the old Yugoslavia. He was um, the son of a church leader during the communist regime. He saw the uprising, he saw absolutely dreadful, awful atrocities. Observe that as he was growing. He had to come to terms, therefore, and I would suggest he is probably better placed than most of us to actually think about what does it mean to deal with the issue of suffering? How what does it mean to, therefore, deal with the issue post-suffering of forgiveness? He says it like this, he argues like this, the way that we work through the issue of forgiveness, the way we work through that is by separating the doer from the deed. And he argues that the separation of the doer and the deed is most seen in the action of God. He said, it works like this. For those who believe and trust in Jesus, there is a separation of the doer and the deed. The separation comes through death, he argues. He says that's how the separation takes place. Jesus said it like this you've got to be born again. Well, you know what? I'm 47. Whatever it is, I think it's 47. I'm 47, I, I'm living. I, for me to be born again requires something, doesn't it? For me to be born again, for you to be born again, I have got to first die. You know, we, we use that phrase so easily, To Jesus used it to be born again. But to be born again, I've got to die First, to be born again. What does God do as we die? He separates. He separates our deeds from the doer and creates a new person. Say, well, that's just great news. But, what do I do with the wrong you know, it's great to be able to say that what God does is He separates the doer from the deed. If I am somebody who's done something terrible, and we all have, it's great news for me to be able to say that God has separated the doer from the deed. That's great news if I've done something terrible. But if I've done something terrible to somebody else, For that somebody else, that's bad news, it seems. It seems like God is willing to separate out what I've done and forget about it. Does he forget about it? No, he doesn't forget about it. He separates out the doer from the deed, but the the deeds don't just end up in some sort of ethereal nothingness. The deeds are then placed on Jesus. And He separates the doer of good and places the wrong on Him. That's exactly how God works. He separates out. With Jesus, He places the wrong on Him and then He deals with it. So how does this relate, therefore, to this demand that God makes of me? In simple terms, it w- works like this. It might be possible, it might be that in God's goodness, He's going to pour out His goodness on this person that, figuratively speaking, has just given me a right crack across my right cheek. Figuratively speaking. You know... Let me just somebody gives me a right crack across my right cheek, I'm ducking, all right, for the next I ain't taking a second one. But my response is to then separate out because it might be that i then got to pour I, I I'm demanded by God to then express relationship with that person. Why? Because that's what God does. Firstly, He pours out the rain, his blessing. On the good and the evil, there is a balance. So in other words, do I only express my goodness to those who, who only do good to me? Am I only kind to people who only are kind to me? If I behave like that, I am trapped. I am absolutely in bondage to how people are going to treat me. <laughs> but if I find in that sense of forgiveness the opportunity to express friendship and relationship to those who have offended me, I am suddenly released. It's exactly what Volf argues. It is only in the separation of the doer and the deed that I can find forgiveness. But secondly, I don't have to allow that wrong to just disappear. I know that it is dealt with. It is either ultimately dealt with by that individual who never turns to Jesus Or it is dealt with by Jesus dying for that very wrong that I have just endured. That I have just borne. I can let go of it. The implications are massive. The implications are life changing. Imagine a world for a moment. Imagine for just one day what it would be like if every wrong in your community was met with a kind response. Imagine what it would be like. Imagine if that continued. Imagine if that escalated. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I want to give you a little taste, an hors d'oeuvre if you like, of what my kingdom will be like. You won't even have to respond lovingly, to a negative because there won't even be an offence or a negative towards you in the first place. It's a little taste of what it will be like when humanity lives in harmony with each other because we are first connected to the God who made us. And it is Jesus who brings that idea to this world. It is the idea of Jesus that calms our thinking. It is the idea of Jesus that brings, as he said, I have come to bring a peace. (laughs) Not a peace that's fully realized yet, a peace that is to be seen.